This is the Ottoman History Podcast, and I'm Chris Grayton. Archives are indispensable resources of the historian, but the archive is an institution where documents are stored, organized, and used as reference by the state and future historians is a modern creation. Before reading The Lost Archive by Marina Rusto, I didn't realize that there was more to the story of the archive than that. What Rusto shows in this new book is that past Islamic empires, while not necessarily leaving behind an organized archive used by scholars today, had much more sophisticated documentary practices than often assumed. In fact, the relative absence of extant documentation is not evidence of a relative lack of documentation as such, but rather evidence of a lost archive. Rusto elegantly argues this point using the case of the Fatimid Caliphate of Cairo, a medieval Ismaili dynasty with a history that has proven especially elusive to historians and is often misunderstood. In part one of my two-part interview with Professor Rusto, we'll explore how she located the lost archive of the Fatimids by following a paper trail that began in the storeroom of an old synagogue, the Cairo Geniza. So I think what surprised me the most after I had immersed myself in the material that I found for a number of years was that a lot of the um, the kind of shape of Islamic statecraft was in place under the Abbasids. So sort of like, you know, 9th century, 10th century, this is really the era when some of the, the kind of stamps that you see persisting for the next thousand years come into being. I mean, just to take one really graphic example, if you think about the boat-shaped lines that you see in a lot of Ottoman documents, especially the Fermans, that's something that begins in the 10th century in Iraq. And, you know, we actually have uh, a couple of surviving documents that suggest that that's going on there. But we also have descriptions of what Abbasid documents look like. And then the first actual tangible documents where we can see this happening are the Fatimid ones. So that it's just one example. I mean, you don't, you don't really have a, a complex documentary culture and archival culture unless you also have differentiated bureaucratic roles and a complex administration. In other words, the idea is that you have not just bookkeeping, but also bookkeeping in such a way that there's there's recourse to it, right? So an archive is not just about the preservation of information, but it's also about preserving it in such a way that it can be accessed. So all of that gets underway quite a bit earlier than I was expecting to see. And there are hints that it's starting to happen even under the Umayyads. So, um, so that was kind of the first thing that I had to to wrap my mind around is that all of this is earlier than even I as a medievalist expected to be. And so to clarify, are you saying that, in fact, though we don't have it today, the Abbasids had some form of archive analogous to the pre-19th century Ottoman archive before it became like a, a modern state archive for that preservation purpose, that the Abbasids likely had something developed with these different departments and functions. I mean, not only did they have an archive, we actually have some sense of what the archive could have looked like um, because there are descriptions of uh, what's in the Abbasid archives being in the form of bound, not exactly volumes, 
but at least by folios, right? So a piece of paper folded in half by folios that are sewn together and they're sewn together in, in different ways. Some are phone, sewn together at the, at the fold. Some are like kind of stabbed through with thread. Some are kept in, in a kind of folder, but we had these different descriptions suggesting that there are methods of storage and that the storage is, is very conscious. It's not just somebody like keeping a pile of stuff in the office, but rather there is an organization to it. And then by the time you get to the Fatimids, the descriptions become more detailed. So the Fatimids, we know, not only kept this kind of, um, this kind of an archive that was, you know, organized and generally speaking, pieces of paper folded in half, but also divided by month, day, and year, and also divided up by province. So that's, that's a level of differentiation that suggests a very, very conscious effort to kind of mirror the organization of empire in this sort of microcosm of, uh, of material texts. That's very fascinating to me as somebody who has mostly accessed uh, the pre-modern Islamic world through manuscripts and through secondary literature, in which it's quite easy to maintain the belief that there wasn't really an archive. And of course, I guess that's because there is no Abbasid archive we can go to and register and get our researcher card and research at. So for historians who will now be disappointed that they can't go to the Abbasid archives, why is it still important for us to rewrite this history as if these states had archives? Or what does the existence of these archives change about the way we think about politics in that period? There's an importance to the way we think about politics in the period, but there's also an importance about the way we as historians work and how we fit into the, the discipline of history. You know, even a lot of specialists in the medieval Islamic world are very, very pessimistic about the possibility of recovering original documents. So the first thing that it's super important to differentiate is what does an archive look like now versus what did the archive look like then? You know, even the Ottoman archives, which are so well organized and from which you can get a pretty good sense of what the empire must have looked like or what the bureaucratic offices must have looked like, has undergone a couple of reorganizations. Even the Ottoman archives, you're not looking at something that's like, you know, what the Grand Vizier would have looked like in X, you know, year of, of the Ottoman centuries. What that means is that for any archive that you work in, you have to try and think your way back to how was this archive actually organized in the period in question? That's like, I would say the most important outcome of this is what you have now is not the same thing as what you had then. And the more organized an archive you have now, I think the easier it is not to ask yourself that question of, okay, but what did this look like back then? So for me, you know, although it was frustrating and difficult and challenging and um, a huge headache to work on these fragmentary documents that uh, were not from an archive, but were from, you know, a gigantic pile of discarded material. Um, at the same time, it offered me a sense of, you know, the waxing and waning of an archive. You could see evidence that these pieces of paper had at one time been in an archive and at another time been jettisoned from the archive for for various kinds of reasons and the way the ways these documents tended to either circulate or not circulate depending on their format so that i would say 
in a way, like in a kind of perverse way, is an advantage to working on less organized materials that you're forced to ask yourself the question of how would this have been organized in the actual period I'm studying? And then in terms of the historical discipline, I mean, I have a whole thing about this in the book. And one thing I got really interested in is, okay, well, historians really like documents. And so when did this begin? Because it certainly wasn't always the case. Historians didn't always have access to documents. And what I discovered is that Leopold von Ranke, who, you know, he he gets kind of quoted, I would say, <laughs> with a certain lack of appreciation as the guy who said, you know, his, the historian's task is to is to reconstruct the past as it really happened, which actually is a oversimplification of what Ranke really believed. But Ranke, in a way, was sort of fighting the same battle back in the 1830s and 40s that I was fighting in this book, which is he was dealing with the history of the Venetian Republic that had been written largely from chronicles and other long-form texts. And what he wanted is he wanted to, to find documents where he could check what these narrative sources were were saying. And the only way he could do that was by actually going into the houses of these Venetian noble families and like, you know, going rummaging around in their attics and in a sense building an archive from scratch. So that's actually what became the the Venetian archives is what Ranka helped to build. So I think it's actually more common than not that historians have to find their archive or even help to create their archive. That's what papyrologists do. That's what we do in Geniza studies. And the Ottomanists are, you know, you guys are maybe even the exception in the sense that you have this all sort of laid laid out for you. Yeah, I think that's a, a great point and a great place to transition to talking more concretely about what's in the book, uh, because the title is The Lost Archive. And so it's a study of an archive that doesn't exist, but persists in another form, in another very different kind of archive that's being reconstructed in sort of a very international effort. Many of the documents you're working with were actually discarded or had been deemed to no longer be worth keeping. And that's actually how they end up being kept in a different location, the Cairo Geniza. Tell us about the Geniza for those who who haven't heard of it or haven't read some of the other works that have sort of uh, fallen in love with the Cairo Geniza. And then Uh, Maybe you can explain for our our listeners, what were the different questions you were trying to ask about this body of sources that hadn't been asked yet? So the Cairo Geniza is um, a kind of collective name for a body of of material that was discarded and stored in a kind of, you know, attic-y type room of a medieval synagogue in Fustat, which is the, the residential core of medieval Cairo. So the synagogue, um, it's now called the Ben Ezra Synagogue. Um, that wasn't what it was called in the Middle Ages. It was called Kenisa Tashamiyin, which is the synagogue in which the Syrians prayed. They weren't actual Syrians. Some of them were actual Sy- Syrians, but it was there were two basic versions of Judaism, the Iraqi version and the Palestinian version. So Kenisa Tashamiyin is where the Palestinian version was followed. And that was, you know, holdover from late antiquity when you had uh, the Palestinian right developing under the Roman Empire and the Iraqi right, not yet Iraq, developing uh, under the Sasanians. So you have this synagogue. It's one of several synagogues in Fustat. And it's built between or rebuilt, I should say, because there was something um, there before, probably a synagogue as well, between 1025 and 1041. And so beginning in 1025, you get material that starts to be discarded 
in this room and continues to be discarded all the way up until 1897 when the chamber is finally emptied and what was left there was brought to Cambridge. So 1897, about 200,000 fragments get brought to Cambridge, England. But before that, another 200 fragments, more or less, had already been dispersed largely by manuscript collectors who had come through Egypt on their journeys through the Middle East and also local um, local dealers, some Egyptologists, right? This is the era when Egypt is really being, ancient Egypt is being excavated. So a lot of the, the Egyptologists themselves were aware of the source of manuscripts. And so the stuff started to get sold off. Okay, so why was the stuff there? So that's actually a really interesting question, which I try to, to push at a little bit in the book, because the going word in my field had been for the longest time that the reason the Cairo Geniza existed and accumulated was that there's a prohibition in Judaism on discarding any piece of writing that could potentially bear the name of God in Hebrew script, right? So this kind of taboo against uh, destroying God's name. In reality, the custom that this synagogue and probably other synagogues followed was much more capacious because you have lots of, uh, lots of material that is in Hebrew script but does not contain the name of God that got preserved anyway. And then you have material that isn't even in Hebrew script and got preserved. So that's kind of the, the capaciousness of it. But there's also another thing, which is um, a colleague of mine, Judith Elshobi Schlanger, who is at the École Pratique des Études and in Oxford, discovered palimpsests in the Cairo so parchment manuscripts where there's an, an undertext that got scraped away and erased, and then something written over it, where the undertext was actually a biblical text with the name of God in Hebrew script, meaning there were at least some Jews in this period who had absolutely no compunction about destroying the name of God in Hebrew script. The other thing I discovered, and this is why like, I, I sort of question the traditional story of the Geniza's, you know, why it came into being, is that there are other parallel caches of manuscript material from the Middle Ages in the Middle East, and even over to Western China that have nothing to do with Jews. For example, the Qubat al-Khazna in Damascus preserved something on the order of 200,000 fragments in a mind-boggling variety of languages, like not just Arabic, but also um, Syriac, Hebrew, Aramaic, Old French, because of the Crusaders, Latin, and preserved it kind of immured in this structure Ditto the, the really old Qur'an manuscripts, like 7th and 8th century Qur'an manuscripts that were preserved in Sana'a and Yemen, were apparently immured between the roof of this mosque and the ceiling. So um, then if you, you go all the way over to Dunhuang, so this is like the part of the book where I ended up way <laughs> farther east than I thought I, would, I thought I would get. But if you get over to, to Dunhuang in western China, so at the eastern terminus of the Silk Road, there were these caches of documents that likewise were found immured behind a wall that was totally inaccessible, that was sealed off in the 11th century. So there seems to have been some kind of, you know, general custom that it went way beyond Judaism. Jews may have had an explanation for it that was particularly Jewish, but I don't think that it was a custom that was particular to Jews.
Okay, so that's that's why the place existed. So what was actually in it? Starting in 1897, actually a little bit earlier, starting in the 1880s, people start, um, you know, rummaging through these texts from the Kyrgyzza, and there's amazing stuff in there. There are, you know, lost books of the Hebrew Bible that didn't make it into the Hebrew Bible because they were not declared canonical. There are texts that are completely unknown. There are texts that are known, but in weird versions. There are unknown texts by known people. I mean, you get the idea. It's just a complete crazy free-for-all that, that you know, people just start completely rewriting the history of Jews and Judaism. In a period before scholars really understood that the 10th, 11th, 12th centuries, the vast majority of Jews, like an estimated 90% of Jews lived in the Islamic world. Right. So if you were going to find a Geniza anywhere in this period, we're really lucky that it wasn't, say, in the Rhineland, in Ashkenaz, which became an important Jewish community later. But in this period was a few random families scattered along some <laughs> some like uh, totally unimportant river in, uh, in, an, in an unimportant continent called Europe. So the, the material starts to get gone through. And starting in the 1920s, it becomes clear that there are a lot of documents there. So it's not just biblical texts, rabbinic texts, weird versions of texts that we already knew, or highfalutin texts by authors who we knew, but we didn't know that they wrote these texts. It's also marriage contracts, personal letters, bills of lading, accounts, just the kind of most random everyday ephemera. And that's when the study of this stuff really gets underway. It gets a big push in the 1940s when a man named Shlomo Dov Goitain decides that he's going to stop working on long-form Arabic texts, which is what he'd been trained to do. He wrote his dissertation on, on El Beladri, and he discovers that there are letters from the Kyrgyzza. The story is, is kind of like this: the founding myth of like my subfield, is that in 1947, Goitain is in Budapest, and he's in Budapest for reasons that nobody knows, but he is waiting for something to happen. And Budapest is probably some kind of diplomatic mission for, you know, the um, what would what would soon become the state of Israel. And he he has to wait for whatever reason. He has about six weeks to kill. So he does what, you know, any scholar would do. He goes to the manuscript library and he starts rummaging around and figuring out what's there. And he discovers these letters in Judeo-Arabic, which is Arabic in Hebrew script. They're really impressive looking because they're about a meter long. And it turns out that there are letters written by traders who are regularly commuting between Egypt and the Malabar coast of India via Yemen. And he realizes that this is, you know, material that's like absolutely unparalleled um, from anything that we know. And he completely changes his whole career plan and spends the next 40 years working on this Geniza material. So, so that's, that's what the material is. It's largely in Hebrew script. The vast majority of it is actually literary material, but some small percentage of it, maybe 10%, like we're talking about 40,000 fragments are documents. And it's the documents that have had the potential and to a large extent that potential has been realized to completely rewrite what we knew about Jews in the Middle Ages. So where my work comes in, and, and here I just want to say that I wasn't the first to, to realize this, I was maybe like the fourth person, is that there's Arabic script material 
that first of all is really hard to read and second of all is extremely important, right? So this is like two facts that work against each other. You look at the stuff and you think, oh my God, no way, I can't read that. And then if you actually spend the time and the effort reading it, you realize it was absolutely worth the effort because it's official documentation from not just the Fatimids, also the Ayyubids and the Mamluks, although the Fatimid material is the majority of it. So the first person to realize this was Goitain himself. He found these Arabic script documents. He really wasn't sure what they were. One of them he thought might have been a petition, but he, you know, he just, he had no context for it. So in comes... S.M. Stern. So Samuel Miklos Stern, who was a Hungarian Jew who by this time was working in Oxford and was an absolutely brilliant, mind-blowingly brilliant Arabic paleographer and could pretty much read anything. Stern realizes that what we're dealing with is petitions to the Fatimid caliph and vizier. And so he published over the next, um, like between 19... 53. And when he died in 1969, he died very young. He died at the age of 48. He published about 20 of these texts. And that was it. 1969, like nobody is interested in the stuff anymore. Actually, that's not true. Donald Richards at Oxford is interested, but he's also interested in other things. And then along comes, and this really is like what made my work possible, Jeffrey Kahn from Cambridge. So Jeffrey Kahn is a Semitic linguist. And he started going through the Arabic script material and he ended up publishing a volume of 160 of these texts. About half of them were legal documents from Qadi courts and the other half of them were state administrative documents. In other words, he comes along and he says, here's a whole pile of material of the sort that we were always told did not actually survive from you know, the 11th and 12th century. Um, and not only that, I've just read a bunch of it. <laughs> so at that point, it becomes possible for other people like me to, to enter the fray and to actually make sense of this stuff. Right. And so within this larger trove that has provided all this stuff for various fields, and of course, totally rewrote the commercial history of the medieval uh, Islamic world and the Indian Ocean and all that, you have this other find, which is that we have a piece of the, what would have been the Fatimid archive, right? The archive of the Fatimid Caliphate, which is an extraordinary thing. Could you tell us a little bit about the Fatimid Caliphate and some of the functioning of its state as revealed through this set of documents that's been found? People in the um, Hebrew script side of Geniza studies, so people who were publishing fragmentary manuscripts of rabbinic texts, had noticed this phenomenon that nobody had tried to explain before, which is every once in a while you'd have a Hebrew text with a gigantic line of Arabic going across it. And the Hebrew writing scribe had simply arranged the text around this gigantic line of Arabic, like, you know, acknowledging that it's there, but it has nothing to do with with his text. So he's just kind of like using the blank spaces on the paper. And so, you know, why one or two gigantic lines of Arabic with like 10 centimeters between the lines? Um, so it turns out these were fragments of Fatimid decrees. It took me actually a long time to figure this out in the sense that the texts that I was, that I had been looking at that Jeffrey Kahn had published were generally speaking petitions. Petitions are a great genre 
I mean, there's something that any any Ottomanist probably has has encountered, and they're a great genre because they're they they really give you a sense of people's problems, right? They're they're a little story in miniature about some difficulty that some kind of average everyday person encountered that he or she expects some branch of the state to solve. And so on the one hand, they have this kind of charm of like the intimacy of, of the everyday. At the same time, they also bring you into this world where people actually have access to the state. They, they see you know, manifestations of the state. They know where to go to have a petition lodged. In the Fatimid world, they don't actually have to go to Cairo. They don't have to go to the capital to have their petition um, heard and responded to. There are, at least my hypothesis is, um, that there are petition writing scribes pretty much all over the Fatimid, all over Fatimid territory in Egypt and Syria. So we knew that there were lots of Fatimid petitions and we knew that the Fatimid state was actually willing to respond to people's requests, you know, sometimes negatively, sometimes positively, but the point is that they were willing to, to actually hear them out. What I began to understand looking at these fragments with the gigantic lines of Arabic is that there was also a lot of internal state documents. So stuff that had nothing to do with like your average everyday people, stuff that were uh, documents that were government documents never intended to be seen by anyone outside of government circles. And that's when the story really got interesting to me. In other words, you can explain the existence of petitions, as I did in the first article that I published on this in, in 2010, as, you know, it was a draft of a petition that somebody wrote, and uh, and that's why it got preserved in the Geniza, because it was written by a Jewish person, or a petition written by a non-Jewish person that got preserved by Jews because it's a model for, for their crafting other petitions, or perhaps, and this had been, you know, the going theory before I got my hands on the stuff, S.M. Stern and Jeffrey Kahn had said there were Jewish bureaucrats, and the Jewish bureaucrats simply deposited these bureaucratic documents, these petitions, into the Geniza chamber in, in the synagogue, which, which never totally convinced me. So you can explain the fact that Jews would have access to petitions. But what about these internal government records? I started to understand that they were surprisingly abundant and they were almost always fragmentary. They look different from the petitions. The petitions have wide line spacing, but we're talking about a couple of centimeters, maybe four or five centimeters at the most. Whereas the fragmentary documents that I started to notice where the Jewish scribes had written around the text, we're talking about the letters are like three centimeters, four centimeters high. The line spacing is 10 centimeters. I mean, these are really, really grand documents. So it turns out that that we have we actually have an analogy to this and not even an analogy, but it's really like we have complete exemplars of this kind of thing preserved in the monastery of St. Catherine in Sinai. So S.M. Stern in 1964 published a book called Fatimid Decrees, where he has a bunch of these incredibly beautiful, grand calligraphic vertical scrolls. The longest of them is eight meters long, which is like kind of boggles the mind. Some are more modest. They're only three meters long. They're generally 40 to 45 centimeters wide. That's the standard size. Sometimes they're half that size. There's like another smaller standard size. So there were eight of them, sorry, seven of them that were preserved at St. Catherine. One of them preserved elsewhere 
one of them from the Coptic Museum in Cairo, one of them from one of the other synagogues in Cairo, not the one where the Geniza was found. So Stern published all of these, and they were decrees that had been written up in the chancery in response to petitions, all of them. And the reason they'd been kept on hand is that the petitioners had kept them. They were generally decrees granting some kind of privilege to do with taxation or property ownership, in one case of a synagogue, in another case of a monastery. And it was amazing that we had these things. However, it was the tip of an iceberg and the iceberg looked very different. The tip of the iceberg, these documents suggested that number one, the texts where we should be looking for the texts is in synagogues and monasteries, because that's where these ones had been preserved. And number two, that these decrees were issued in response to petitions. Okay, so that's the tip of the iceberg. When I started to like look at the, the iceberg, what I found was very different, which is synagogues and monasteries are the exception. That most of these things didn't get preserved at all. They actually got scrapped and sold as scrap paper and then reused by lots of other scribes, not just Jewish scribes. We also have these decree fragments with Greek texts written around them. We have ones with Arabic texts written around them. So it's not just the Jews who are, who are doing this. And number two, most importantly, that these great big decrees at, at which I was looking at, you know, I was looking at fragments of them were not actually written in response to petitions most of the time. They were written from one administrator to another. So you're, let's say, working in the central government in Cairo and you need to issue an order to a provincial govern governor in Damascus or Ramla or Ashkelon or some place that's, that's far from Cairo. You're going to do it in a very impressive and grand format because this is the way you're expressing not just the decree, but the fact that the decree has to be obeyed, right? There's a kind of performativity to the size and splendor of these grand decrees. But when you, the provincial governor, receive this grand decree, once you enact the order that the decree contains, you're under absolutely no obligation to hold on to it. There's already a record of this decree in the Chancery Archive in Cairo. And we know this because Jeffrey Kahn discovered a tiny little modest bifolio that contained the text of a decree that he figured out based on four pinholes at the fold were once bound into an archive. The document actually says at the top that this is a copy of a decree. What I began to understand in comparing that and other archival documents, archival decrees that had survived with the really fancy long scrolls and then reading that against this one really helpful chancery manual that the head of the Fatima chancery wrote in 1130 is that actually the tiny little unimpressive looking compact modest bifolio that was kept in the Fatima archives that was the platonic master copy that was actually not the like copy that was like the text the master text from which these grand decrees were then copied by the calligrapher of the chancery so the calligrapher of the chancery is not making up the text as he's writing. He's copying from some version that some much more important official has approved before he actually gets busy. So while these gigantic decrees might look really impressive to us and even contain 
the signature, the alama in Ottoman terms, the you know tukra of either the caliph or of the vizier. And so we think, oh, this is the important text. They're not the important text. They are a mere instrument. I call them an instrument of performance. I actually compare them to the who, <laughs> to Pete Townsend's, uh, you know, Pete Townsend used to like smash up his guitar after concerts. He was famous for doing that. And in a way, it's the same thing that you have this massive, impressive looking decree. But once the performance is over, it's no longer necessary to hold on to it. So these things get sliced in half down the middle and sold off as scrap paper on the open market. Essentially, this was like the smoking gun where I realized that to think that the great big grand decrees were the important story was actually, this is, they were a red herring, that the important story was in the compact by folio from which these grand decrees then got, got generated. But the originals are not extant. The original decrees that were written on the small folios, those are gone, right? So you'd think so, right? <laughs> but no. <Okay. laughs> um, so this, this is actually like the one mystery that I, you know, I, I was not able to resolve in a satisfactory manner, which is the fact that in fact, the bifolio platonic original text that was meant for the archive, one of those in fact did survive in the Geniza. This is the text of the decree that Jeffrey Kahn published in 1986. So the question is, how did this thing actually get from the Fatimid archive into the Geniza? I can only speculate. That said, what I did start to notice is that when I measured that bifolio decree, that compact platonic original, the measurements were, I'm like terrible at remembering numbers, but I think it was 17 by 25 centimeters. Um, so you know, if you if you go in landscape mode, 25 centimeters across and then 17 centimeters high, and then you fold it in half, you have a bifolio with four different writing surfaces. I started to notice other state documents in the exact same format. One of them was a record of three arrests, kind of some kind of like great cases, right? Because arrests usually involve like violence and that always makes for good history writing, um, just like it makes for, you know, good screenplays. So there was a record of arrests. There were some, some fiscal records, you know, kind of lists of expenditures that exactly the kinds of things that you would expect to see preserved in an archive, many of them adhered to this exact same format, which was 25 by 17 centimeters by folio, um, four different writing surfaces. Some of them had holes at the fold, suggesting that they had been bound codex style. And some of them have holes through the middle of the pages, suggesting that there had been a kind of you know stab binding where you just kind of poke the thing through with a thread or with some sharp object attached to a thread in order to keep the papers bound together. I actually, I just did a, um, a Twitter post on this last week because somebody posted one of the documents that happened to be in my book, nothing to do with the Fatimids. It was a document from Central Asia with a bunch of holes in it. And so we started talking about holes. When you find holes in a text, how do you interpret them? Are the holes original to the text in the sense that, you know, the person who wrote it bounded into something? Or are they holes that were added later because the book got used as like the paper got used as like, you know, filler for a book binding? How do you handle these holes? And there are different ways of interpreting them. The ones that I was looking at, precisely because they'd been preserved in the Geniza, I had reasonable confidence that these holes were put through them 
at least within decades, if not actually minutes um, of their being of their being written, but certainly not centuries later. So of course I want I asked myself, okay, so what was the what was the the lapse time between when an archival document got written and when it got jettisoned from the archive? I skipped a step here. Let me just like take a step back. So on the one hand, you have the documents that like the provincial governors have no reason to preserve. Then you have the archival texts, which like have to be preserved. But even within the archive itself, there is a process of jettison. There are texts that are important to preserve because the governor of the province who's mentioned in these texts is still the governor of the province or because the province, you know, is still causing you trouble and you need to be able to go back and find records of it. And then there are texts from the archive that just don't matter anymore because they're 150 years old and um, it's a completely different situation. And there's no reason to hold on to them because they were dealing with a matter that was so specific and so immediate as to um, really not you know, necessitate further reference. So, so that is where I started to understand that an archive is not a static entity. In a sense, it's a, it's a living ecosystem Things come into the archive, but things also have to come out of the archive. It's not simply a mandate of preserving everything. There's also a mandate to order things. And if you're ordering things, then that means that you have to jettison the things that are no longer useful to you. So an active archive, unlike a Geniza, is something from which things also exit. Things don't just come into an archive. They also go out of an archive if it's a living archive. Only in a dead archive do things stay in permanently. Thank you for listening to part one of our two-part conversation with Marina Resto. In part two, we'll talk to Professor Resto about what the lost archive of the Cairo Geniza tells us about the Fatimid Caliphate in the medieval Islamic world. Dealing with fragmentary documents from scattered places and time periods from a single empire caused me to write a completely different kind of book because it forced me to put the state at the center of my narrative. Also be sure to check out our special episode entitled Fragments of the Fatimid Caliphate from our 10-part series on the making of the Islamic world, which offers a great overview of the period and questions discussed in this interview. I'm Chris Grayton. That's all for now, but I hope you'll join us soon in part two of our interview with Marina Rustow on The Lost Archive. <laughs>